Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, more than 600 episodes and counting, all of it's available free of charge. It's offered freely. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the show, if you like it, if you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. Yep. Hello. Hey, how you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Fiona Allison Duncan is on the program today. She's my guest. She has a debut novel out from Soft Skull Press. It is called Exquisite Mariposa. It's been getting rave reviews. Fiona Allison Duncan, a uh, Canadian by birth who now lives here in the United States and who has written uh, an excellent first novel. So you're going to hear that uh, just a second from now, or not just a second, but you know what I mean, soon. I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving if you're in transit, uh, safe travels. If you're, you know, at home or something and your family's driving you crazy, I hope you're listening to this while you're sitting at the table with them or in a room with them, or maybe you're hiding, maybe you're shopping, maybe you're listening to this while you shop. If you're a person who does that, not that we all don't shop. I just mean like, you know, the, the sales or whatever after Thanksgiving. So I had a nice time meeting Fiona, Allison Duncan. We talked for a while and, uh, she's very interesting. Her book is interesting. I think our conversation's interesting and I hope you enjoy it. Are you ready? Here she is, folks. This is Fiona, Allison Duncan. And her debut novel is called Exquisite Mariposa. I grew up in Canada, but my mother um, is a many-generation Californian, and my father happened to be born in the States, so my whole family has dual citizenship, but uh, my mom... Lucky you. Everybody lives in Canada besides me, and my grandparents. I want Canadian citizenship right <laughs> you know, I was There was a while where I was trying to... Um, thinking about maybe it had value when I was really, really broke and you're like trying to think of things you can do for money, you know, like selling your eggs or being a surrogate mom or selling your Canadian citizenship or selling my American citizenship to a Canadian because I actually know more Canadians who want to come to the States. Can you sell your citizenship? 
I mean, it's like illegal and oh. like where you would get married, you would like oh, create right. a rate, like in the same way that, yeah, sex work is illegal or yeah, it's still illegal most places. So you marry somebody, you marry them into you the marry, citizenship. Yeah. You marry them and you fake a relationship and go through the green card application with them. And I mean, I it, like, thank God, thank God my survivalism wasn't so bad that I did that because it would have been a disaster. Yeah. I mean, it can, I think I know somebody who did that or I heard of somebody who did that, you know, and it worked out, but I think like he was gay and she was straight. Yeah. I was that one. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it wasn't like, you know, there was no complication in terms of like the relationship. I was convinced I never wanted to get married. So it was, it doesn't, it was valuable to me. And, but like 30 K or something would have been valuable to me, which isn't really even worth it. You'd have to charge more because it's so much work. So you were convinced that you didn't want to get married back in the day. Yeah. It was just like youthful and you just have lots of ideas about yourself in the world. And has that changed? Yeah. I try not to have ideas about what I want because I'm so capricious. Right. Right. Yeah. I feel the same way. Like anytime I take a bold stance on anything, I almost always come to regret it. Well, yeah, because I feel like reality is like a, there's like a trickster mechanism where it'll like do something to make you change your mind. And, and just like, what do I know? Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. I have lots of, I have a few younger friends who do this all the time and I just have to like close my eyes and not say anything, let them have it. But yeah, I feel that way as a, I feel that way as a parent, you know, maybe to a fault. I said, now I saw like I, I oscillate. I'm like, I don't want to get in my kid's business. They've got to sort things out on their own, but I also don't want to be like two hands off. How old are they? Nine and four. Okay. Yeah. 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 I just don't want to, you know, I don't want to impose like belief systems on them. I know it's really tricky, but the thing about that is my parents really tried to, to I think that was their approach, but you're always imposing belief systems on them by them observing your actions. And also there's so many belief systems in media that if you don't create counter narratives or offer like tools to create your own belief systems, I think it can be really dangerous to be left without some, um, <laughs> elder guidance, having a quiet panic attack as you're talking about this, <laughs> but I get it. No, I think you, uh, I think like uh, lead by example, mm -hmm. they're going to pick up on stuff. And then especially as they get older and they get more online, I'm going to have to manage the situation a little bit. It's so weird and uh, terrifying what they have access to. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, if mm -hmm. you just leave them to their own devices, they could easily go sideways, especially when they're young and I don't know. I think you have to have faith that they're not going to go sideways, but it's good to leave resources around that are um, other things than the internet. The internet's troubling because it has, it's created, it seems like there's a mind of its own at this point that's filled with a lot of hostility right. and bullying. And I don't, I, it's interesting to me that that medium has become this like locus for a lot of really what I would think of as like dark energy. It is, yeah, it has. Then again, like, you know, I go back and forth, like, I think I'm in some ways I'm, well, I'm worried about predation when it comes to my daughter Yeah. and I'm worried about like my son, that's also predation, but being, uh, influenced by people who would want to, you know, there's a lot of like weird propaganda and dark energy in like boy world. Yeah. 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 I'm um, familiar. But he's all, my son is also disabled. And I think that like, maybe the internet will be like a refuge. I could imagine how that could happen. Uh, like gaming and the, the sort of anonymity or the invention of self that you're allowed on the internet. 
mean, everybody sort of likes likes it for that. Absolutely, the avatar and the d- disembodied, but like, yeah, the cognitive imaginary. And I whatnot. would have loved it as a kid. See, I'm old. I didn't have. Oh, <laughs> you don't seem that old. I'm 44. Okay, I'm 32. Okay, I'm but, like the bridge generation. The per- yeah, yeah. I grew up in an analog world. Yeah, yeah. Which, I was like half half, like perfect. The fade. I'm cross fade. I'm so glad I knew a world without mm-hmm. the internet. Me too. Me too. Like, just so I can, you know, have some idea what the difference is. Yeah. I'm not saying it was all better. It was just different. It was different. There's like, um, I feel like, especially one sense of time is very different. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think like, I just think like as an adolescent who was like a little bit awkward, I guess everybody's awkward. Mm-hmm. I would have enjoyed being able to exist in writing. Like mostly in writing online, but right, 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 I probably right, right, would have come right, to right, regret right. it after the fact. Yeah, ha- having that like record of. <laughs> my... But a lot of it disappears. Thank God. Actually, I mean, there's the Wayback Machine and different internet archiving, and if people want to find dirt on you, you know, there's people who are good at finding it online. But a lot of it does fade. What is the Wayback way Machine? It's just like a way to like check it's, out the internet yeah, from 20 if you years Google ago. The Wayback Machine. I think it's also called the internet archive it was an initiative i think out of the bay to archive the internet and so um if you have a url for like i worked for a magazine called adult magazine oh yeah um that my friend sarah nicole prickett founded i interviewed her on this pro on this program okay over the phone it was yeah. one of the hardest interviews i've ever done for this show why <laughs> she's um she was just like i don't know if she wanted to do it or she was was unsure about me it's just harder over the phone yeah always also i mean I wouldn't say she's capricious, but there's different sides of Sarah and she can be extraordinarily generous and then, um, really smart and cutting. Yeah. She's smart. I I mean, I didn't, I didn't not enjoy it. I was just like trying to like find a connection. I don't know if I did. I haven't, I mean, this was years ago. I'd have to listen to it. Maybe it's better than I remember. Yeah. It might be better than you remember. Uh, if she comes out with a book, it'll be very good. Very, very good. She's Canadian too, right? Yes. Okay. It was a Canadian connection. In any case, Adult Magazine got hacked a few times. There were all sorts of like exciting insider drama with it, but it means that it doesn't exist now except through the Wayback Machine. So you have to look up the exact URL of an article that I, had, you know, one had published, and then you can find like see it as it was captured in 2014 or 15 or 16, and you can navigate from there, but that's the only way to access it. Have you ever used this to like, uh, in t- like find some, you know, find somebody's online stuff? No, I'm not a lurker. A lot of people are lurkers and sleuths and I, I get that and admire it, um, in its own way, but I, I don't use, I don't do that. Yeah. I mean, here's what I, here's what I do. If I'm on Twitter, cause it's the only social media that I use and somebody like likes something I say, but I have no idea who they are. Hmm. I will sometimes find myself like desperate to be like, who is this person? Mm. So you click through to their Twitter and you start to read their Twitter, but then it's like, well, what do they look like? Who are they? Right. Cause otherwise it's just like this disembodied. You do the retrace. Yeah. And like suddenly I'm like flipping through like dozens of photos and then I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't even know this person. Mm-hmm, and like, I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, these are their Christmas pics. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think every, most people do that. Or I think a lot of people do that. I don't, I don't know why you don't care. I think I just don't feel like I have enough time because I'm always just trying to get by and there's a lot going on and scarcity and things like that. So that doesn't seem like a priority. I'm also not really a procrastinator. I'm pretty efficient. Um, but it, it, I'm sure doing that occasionally could have brought me 
interesting connections and might have been good a good thing. Okay. I'm wow. not saying it's better. I just don't. You don't. Yeah. You never have. Unless it's like a DM, like something like really involved, you know? Yeah. I don't think I've ever DM'd anybody. I mean, I've DM'd with like friends, but like, I don't like. Right. DM know. a stranger. That's how I met my boyfriend. He DM'd you, me. He DM'd you. Like a long thing. And what did you say? You were like, was this weird? I said, or? you're not real. You're a stranger on the internet. I'm not going to respond. I mean, I didn't see it for like a week or two because it was, I had a private Instagram. And so it went into like a little portal that you have to decide to go into of like messages. Okay. Uh, but eventually we had a good conversation. So it can happen. Yes. But we also, I won't respond to someone if we don't have mutuals. And we had like a lot of mutual friends. Ah. So I'll do that cross-reference. I guess that's it. Yeah. Okay. See, this is the stuff you've got to navigate. I also met my wife like before all of the dating apps went online, mm -hmm. like just before. So like I never lived in that world either. I feel like I missed all this stuff. I mean, I hate dating apps, but some people love them and they suit them. But my, my friend, John Christian and I, um, were toying with them a little bit when they were first kind of coming out. Like when he was on Grindr and then Tinder had sort of started having like a queer window for a while. It was more straight. And I was maybe on Tinder and something called Thrinder that was supposed to be for like alternative sexual preferences or something like that. And I think I was on it for maybe nine months and we both decided it was bad feng shui. Like, cause you're looking down instead of out and up. And so we deleted them. Maybe he went back on. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you, are you pretty disciplined with technology? Like somebody who would even consider, you know, the feng shui of their app usage. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I just recently upgraded my phone because I got an advance, like I got the rest of my advance and had some money for the first time in a while. And I was on like an iPhone four or some shit that was cracked and it was so slow and I couldn't have any apps. And, um, my, my usage is like up, was up so much the first week that I got it, that I felt sick. And so now I've had to like mindfully try to discipline myself out of the phone zone. Cause I know it can be really addicting. Yeah. I gotta get, I gotta, I gotta be better. But you know, I'm also like a parent and there's a lot of downtime, right? I'm not right, out right, and about, right, right, like right, I'm right, right. tucking my son in and I'm like, you're just lying there. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Watch him breathe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Enjoy my child. And I mean, yeah. he's trying to sleep and I'm like on Twitter and I, then I'm looking at somebody's Christmas pictures, you know, I don't know. Um, but let's talk about your book. Like your book, uh, you spent some time in LA. 
Yeah, I was here for three, three, four years. Okay. And th this book feels derived from the stuff of life, mm. but maybe that's all an illusion or mm -hmm. like how, you know, how meta is it? How autofiction is it? Oh, um, you know, autofiction was not part of my vocabulary when I was writing the book, but it's come up a lot in interviews. And then I've also said this, so it's maybe getting redundant for the one person who's reading all my interviews, <laughs> um, which is like probably my father. Um, but the roman à clef, which is um, the French term for a, a novel with a key, is probably the genre I most identify with with this book, which is like a a, a reality text that's loosely veiled in fiction for modes of satire or protecting the author. And um, the fiction, nonfiction veil has yeah more to do with like... Um, what would you say? Not protect, yeah, a bit protecting oneself. Yeah, maybe that's it. But you call it like the characters your name, like you made decisions. Yeah, we debated whether to do that. Well, initially it started as nonfiction, right? And then I learned how to write fiction in the process of writing it. And so I started adding fictional flourishes and understanding how to make composite um, characters and understanding how to project parts of myself that were under actualized into a character and like a mode of fantasy, like all sorts of things that I learned while in the process of writing this book over the course of two or two, two or three years. I can't remember how long. Um, and so it, when it's like that, you can only call it a novel, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes too, like when you're trying to render reality and it just, you get to a, a place where you're stuck or it's boring <laughs> or it doesn't necessarily allow you to say what you want to say. Mm. Um, sometimes the only way to get there is to add those flourishes and to, to be honest in the case of this book, I think if it had been fully factual, fully journalistic, as I maybe would want it to be in an ideal world, if I had the resources to like protect myself, it would have been way more exciting and way more wild. And, um, if anything, the fiction diluted it. Really? Mm -hmm. What do you mean the resources to protect yourself? Like, like you need fact checkers and, um, to be, I, I like just more time, legal guidance, hiring lawyers, legal and... guidance. Um, because they're, yeah, I, I can't say more than that, but there were instances of things that could have been interesting to include, but, and resources also is like, um, emotional, um, bandwidth to deal with some of the repercussions of if you go full on like people getting pissed off uh -huh. about seeing themselves on the page. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. So talk about your time in, uh, Los Angeles. Like you came out here 2015, about this, this time of the year, 2015, but I have been visiting, um, frequently the year leading up to that. I sort of do that when I plan on moving somewhere, I end up visiting a lot and then make the move and then make the move. And you came out here to do what? Oh, I don't know. Nothing, everything. Um, I mean, I tell I would tell myself a lot of things of why I was doing something to justify the move in some way. And in some, I think also oddly, I don't know, there's like so many layers of consciousness, right? There's the thing that I'm saying, which is actually closer to the true core truth of the matter. But in between that was something else that I was behaving that was like derailing me. I don't know if that makes sense. It doesn't explain. <laughs> So I said I was coming to write a book on like esotericism and astrology. And I was thinking more of a nonfiction 
book about how astrology was trending, which is something that I was noticing then. And I had spoken to some editors about this premise, and I just really didn't like the way that they were encouraging me to go, which was this like more formulaic nonfiction route where you have to be this objective observer and maybe critique it. You know, there's just like a model for this kind of book. And, but I was taking it all really seriously. And most of my, um, heroes and, and peers are artists, artists, poets, and musicians and performance artists. And, um, we would all critique a book like that for missing like the truth or something. So I said I was doing that, but then I was also like just smoking. I smoked so much weed and just, um, microdosing and running around and having love affairs and doing all sorts of other things that, um, maybe my roommate would like discern more as my actions. Um, so when you like microdosing, was it sub psychoactive for you? What does that mean? Sub psychoactive? Like, were you feeling it? Cause like the whole point Ooh. of microdosing is that you're not supposed to really, it's not supposed to work on your brain. You know, you're able to right. like function in life and like grocery shop and stuff. I could function in life, um, but I would notice a difference. But if anything, it felt like, I mean, I was mostly microdosing on mushrooms Yeah, and it felt like, I don't know. Do you, do you wear, um, contacts or glasses? No. But you've had like a vision test. I have. It felt like I was going to the clearer vision when I was microdosing on mushrooms. Okay. Because if I think it forces you into more of this like immediate, pre- like screens get gross. You look at a screen and it's like, it's really unappealing um, energetically. And so you um, end up focusing a lot more on um, what's before you instead of these like alternative portals or depending on what else you're mixing it with. Um, in terms of actions like a walk or closing your eyes in meditation or weed or whatever, um, it might like vortex you into um, more like universal or retrospective um, internal visions. Yeah, I was like, I was hoping that it was going to be like a uh, like a creative. It was going to enhance creativity. It can, I think. I know, but like I did it once, and I actually had. Sam Lipsight, the author, uh-huh. coming over to do the show. Yeah. And I was sort of fucked up. Right. And then think... the whole time he was here, I was worried that like I was talking to him just like this. And right. I was like, oh my God, I'm sort of tripping. I'm like, does he know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Why didn't you tell him? I feel like I that told would've... him afterwards. I emailed yeah. him and I was like, Sam, I hope you, you know, if I seemed weird, I, I didn't <laughs> Did have he to say that you seemed weird. Did he no, think... he was like, I had no idea. He was laughing, you know, because, uh, you should have said it on air. That would have been good media. I think when I microdosing was also like a trend, but I think someone, and there were lots of articles about how to do it. But when I started doing it, there weren't that there was like the articles were sparse, but everything that I read was that you were supposed to do it consistently and regularly. So in the same way that I would have like discipline with the phone, I was like, I bought a bunch of mushrooms. I split it all up. I had a little medicine, um, you know, those like cases that old people have with their daily whatever yeah, the pills, yeah. the pill thing. And ooh, sorry, I just, hit your microphone. She just punched the microphone. Um, I uh, would do it every other day or every other other day. So like on, off, off, on, off, off, right. on, off, off. And I try to take it around the same day, time every day. And I would observe how I felt and did that for weeks to months, I think. Damn. Okay. And did, what were the net effects? Did, can you define it? Well, it's hard to say, right? Because I also was learning that that helped me learn to meditate pro- like truly and certain um, activities like um, hikes and, and yoga and all these things that are otherwise healthy, eating like real food, um, 
were more appealing. And so the net effect was very positive. I think it really helped me um, treat some an accumulation of anxieties and stresses and depressions. Uh, but from what? You know, it's like, the, did it help you see like what the causes were? Yeah, a little bit. A li- yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, just like life stuff or like, is there big stuff like? Um, I mean, I think life stuff is big stuff or it, no, in my case, probably too personal to get into. It wasn't like one major aha, thing. No, it was like pa- more pattern recognition, um, throughout. So basically since like, yeah, childhood too, or pu- like entering into puberty until then. Until the moment of microdose insight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which had, I think a lot to do. And the book gets into this, um, with certain like gendered norms or sexual, um, ideas to fulfill that, um, weren't not, it's not that they weren't authentic. I don't know that. Yeah. We're just conf- lots of confusions. And it helped you to see. Yeah, but it was that among with tons of stuff. I was reading all sorts of mystic texts. I was talking with friends. I was reading psychoanalysis. You know, like I, I do a lot at once always. It, it's, um, it wasn't just the mushrooms. No, but I do believe that um, psych- in psychedelic psychotherapy, I don't know if that's the term. Yeah, no, it used to be like, especially in Los Angeles, it used to be a big thing. It's becoming more of a thing. A friend of mine is... Um, doing it in Canada. He's being trained because I guess there's been new laws passed or something where it's, um, soon going to be possible to do this. And in Canada, mm -hmm, in Montreal, I don't know if it's all across Canada. I don't have my facts. Yeah. I feel like in a, in a clinical setting with, uh, an experienced and like trained guide and with a, you know, carefully regulated dose, you know, so you know how much you're taking or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to believe there's some upside to that. I think so. I think so. The danger is like um, addiction or thinking that confusing, thinking that the substance is what's helping you rather than the experience that the substance is leading you to. Right. Being the thing. Like the Dumbo's feather. I don't know. You can fly without it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's like there's something and you took in addition to microdosing, like you've done like a proper trip at a higher dosage. Yes earlier in my life. And then a little bit here and there during that time, those experiences, um, like they're, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't, uh, you can't say that they aren't powerful. Like, (laughs) do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I can't find the language for it, but they're just, uh, they're guaranteed. If you take enough of those things, you're going to have a powerful There's an effect. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be, it's going to shake you up. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think when it comes to psychological stuff and psychological treatment and even meditation, things like that, they can, the, the effects can sometimes be underwhelming mm. and I'm not suggesting that psychedelics are some sort of magical elixir that's going to fix everything Mm-mm. in somebody's life. But I can guarantee you that if you're looking for an experience, <laughs> And you take enough of these things, you know, it's going to blow your mind. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. I mean, I was into Terrence McKenna, you know, when I was really, really anxious, I would 
just listen to his um, like YouTube lectures yeah. to guide me to sleep because his voice isn't like got this rhythmic. And um, you know, he was touring, talking about the benefits of psychedelics, but he would even say it's not something you know, do it once a year, um, not something to do or rely on all the time or become like, a total burnout or something or do like I did when I was in college and like take them and go to like some crazy concert. Right. I mean, no, that's fun too. I mean, but it's also different. I have a friend who has, I've, I have a lot of friends who have never done any drugs, um, or drank or, and have, or are very moderate with all of it. I have no interest and they don't really have a need because other things cracked them open. You know, there's different things. And I think when I went in with my, I had the intention with, uh, microdosing that it would help me and it would crack me open and get me to certain states. And I think that intention, um, was maybe even a placebo. Who knows? What, did, did you get cracked open? I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you said you learned how to meditate. Mm -hmm. Like what kind of uh, modality, what meditation? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's like, who knows? You make up your own. <laughs> I, I probably some fusion of like Kundalini practices, breath work to like help get your body into certain, um, or your heart, you know, into certain rhythms. And then who, who knows? I would, I would really think I just kind of made it up. Transcendental meditation is appealing, but they charge so much for it. Yeah. I mean, you can do like scholarships and they have some, some forgiveness if you go in there, but I just, uh, I just got that for my sister as a gift. Mm -mm -mm. Um, a good gift. It was a good gift. Yeah. But it was expensive. Yeah, it is expensive. But you know, I don't even know if she's doing it. But the thing is, is that you can't give the gift and then be like policing afterwards. Well, it's like a book, you know, gifting a book is always like, you're asking someone to read it and that can take a long time. People got to do it on their own time. Yeah. But it's, yeah. People have gifted me books and I haven't read them for like four years and then I read them at the right time. And right. It's ideal. Um, did you ever have any like flashes, like flashes of light or like mystical experiences in meditation? Sure. I write about it in the book. Okay. But it's real. Yeah. A lot of the book is, um based on experiences. Huh. So you went the light disembodied, like mm -hmm. describe the mystical states that you achieved in meditation. Oh, um, I mean, there's a, I don't, I, there's a scene in the book that's like very, a few, a number of them that are descriptions of, I mean, and when I read those passages now that the book, because like a large, number a lot of the book is fiction and it's packaged all under fiction when i read those passages which all the, the all the hallucinations are factual those come from a diary of that those experiences i read those and they they're kind of very cringy because as fiction they're really bad you're like ew why would you even bother to write this into fiction like it's not interesting to me at all but they were um true experiences someone mm -hmm. can read the book if they want that mm -hmm. Um, okay. So grew up in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, in an artistic household. Like, did you, do you come from writerly people? Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say there's absolutely no way I would be a writer if it weren't for my parents. I was a gymnast and an actress and very, very happy as a kid, like outgoing, uh, extrovert dancing, you know, very embodied. And, uh, they are very, very, very bookish people. Uh, do they, do they do anything uh, professionally that has to do with writing? My mom's an academic. Um, and my father is a computer engineer, but in many ways he is more, not more read, but different. He reads like heady philosophy and 
high literature. She reads a lot of academic texts, some popular fiction, a lot of like mystery novels and what she calls brain candy. And in her youth, like when my parents were my or younger than me in their 20s, they were very artistically driven. There's like Kathy Acker, like lots of crazy wild stuff, first editions in the house. Okay, so you grew up around all that. Yeah, but I didn't I didn't really recognize it then because I didn't become interested in a lot of this stuff until I was in my 20s. And before that you were acting? No, I never I like went to a few acting classes. I just think I li I think I was quite normal or trying to be normal and working really hard at being normal and doing what you were supposed to do, going to school, hanging out with friends, trying to have romances, just like basic like a healthy all like not all american but all canadian upbringing kind of but with the contrast of my family being like they're they're eccentrics um and very very intellectually rigorous in different ways um my mother does a lot of work on policy and she's very practical i think in her um intelligence and her work um and my father is more uh philosophically minded and historical and scientific um, but they're, yeah, both very, uh, critical high minds, not like, not things that I now am maybe bringing to the family matrix would be like poetry and more frivolity in the realm of, uh, literary arts. So what, uh, discipline, like what academic discipline does your mother work in? She's in communication studies, which is that vague, um, department. Uh, I think communication studies refers to anything to do with communication technology. So internet policy, gender in the media, youth in the media, stuff like that. Oh, okay. Wow. And then do you have siblings? I have a younger brother. You do. What is he up to? He's making music in Montreal, which is a good place to make music. Yeah. I feel like I, I've never been to Montreal, but I feel like I want to go there. You should go. Yeah. Go in the summer. Either go like in proper winter and be prepared for snow and like to have i mean it's so hard for california to go because what are you going to do rent all the winter gear that you need like or buy it that's be absurd um you know it's like three feet of snow often yeah uh but that can be lovely in a contrast it gets redundant after five or six months of it uh, summer is nice there so you had a good like brainy household growing up in canada mm -hmm. normal ish childhood did but it feels like was there because i was sort of the same way i was working hard to sort of fit in and be normal i think as most kids do i was i don't know i think i did an okay job of it but i think like there was also a part of me that felt very awkward and inauthentic or something it's very likely most people feel that or a lot of the people i speak with do or did yeah, I wouldn't say it was normal, but I won't get into fully what wasn't normal. About your youth. Uh-huh, yeah, that's stuff to excavate in future fiction, and you want the future fiction to read more like fiction, so you can't tell them that it's real. So I'm not going to... You're going to save it. <laughs> yeah, I'm saving all of that stuff. Yeah, because I was going to ask. Like, I, I always like love to know... I think about my own life, and this could be like... I don't even know if it's accurate. But I think about certain events in my life that I feel like were pivotal and formative, particularly in terms of how I turned out 
as a creative person and someone who's bookish and whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. it is that I am and that I do, it's like a little bit nebulous even now, Mm -hmm. but the story that I tell myself is that there were like losses, like deaths and in, in particular, like deaths, uh, out of, out of their proper time, you know, tragic deaths of Mm -hmm. people who died before their time Mm -hmm. that I was witness to. And there were multiple Mm -hmm. and like some of them were like really hardcore, um, that that's like the rosebud. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Um, but then I'll sit there and go, really? Or is that just what I'm telling myself? Mm. Right. I guess we all do that. Yeah. It's interesting what we get attached to. And that's what you learn while writing about your life. For instance, is people are like, whoa, that's what stood out. That's what was the formative piece of your identity that you carried around for 15 years and oriented all your decisions around this like thing that you thought happened or interpreted something or internalized it. And they'll tell you a story about yourself that you have like absolutely no recollection of. Right. Yeah. It's all a fiction. Like it's all bullshit. A lot of it's fiction. That's why it's really amazing to have, um, strong integrated communities who are reflect, you know, groups of people who are reflecting you back and all collectively reflecting each other and helping each other create like a healthier, more holistic sense of self. Do you have that? I'm, I've been building it. Yeah. Really actively building it. Like just making, like maintaining friendships and building community in some way. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work. I have a series called hard to read. I had a spinoff called pillow talk. That was, um, community pillow talks tagline was community organizing on sex, love and communication. And hard to read was a literary series. Hard to read. I've done 60 events over the last three years in Pillow Talk, there's been maybe 20 events and all of them are based in bringing um, sort of an extended arts community, and but with, you know, the extension sometimes being activists or academics, um, filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera, together um, to sort of just exchange. And through that, certain relationships have um, been fortified or emerged, and those are the more lasting ones. Um, you've done how many events? You said 60. I've done 60 hard to read events in three years and maybe 20 pillow talks in two years. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. In New York. Uh, most of them were in LA. I moved to New York. Um, and some of these events are tiny, you know, like a little workshop and some of them are big, 200, 300 people collecting and, um, watching like a two hour program. But yeah, mostly in LA, trying to do more and more in New York, but I keep getting invited back to LA to do them. One, because I think LA um, has a lack of this, and that's sort of why I started doing it in the first place in Los Angeles. And now there's precedent, word of mouth, no, 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 so it's easier um, to get these invitations, and because space is less scarce in Los Angeles versus New York. Right. New York, they're like, rent our space for $3,000, then you can host your event. And you're like, this is like a community event, and I'm doing it pretty much for free and i mean sometimes i can generate resources for myself and all my collaborators which i try really hard to do but you can't always do it right yeah i feel like la needs community Mm -hmm. everywhere needs community and we have to define what that means in like a post internet world and a what i call i mean the characters in my book are the like um the jet set but not like the precariat jet set or whatnot who um they don't have um, a lot of funds, but through arts invitations or modeling invitations or ex- housing exchanges and sublets and like really scrappy cheap airfares at this point can like move around a lot. Um, and so what does community mean when you have 
really close friends who are just like constantly moving between different cities and I feel like any city I go to I run into people who I've known in that city and that city like different cities before and at different times and time like kind of collapses in itself in a weird way yeah well that. no and I feel like people are making a living these days because a lot of jobs you don't have to be in yeah office. that's free, the freelance thing yeah so you can sort of you know there are people living all over the world doing mm -hmm, this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that something you want to do um, I, I, th I have this idea that it's healthy to ground and root and have property, but it's definitely something that my gener my demographic, generational demographic, um, doesn't have access to. There's like a housing crisis in major metropolitan cities that they want to, we want to be in. Um, and the economy hit us such that, it, yeah, with a few exceptions of people who inherited wealth, buying a house and grounding is not accessible. Yeah. It's, it's a, there's a funny tweet somebody posted. It was like, you know, right around Halloween and they're like, yeah, it's a haunted house. But instead of like monsters jumping out at you, it's just baby boomers jumping out at you, asking you why you haven't bought a house yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would, I for pillow talk recently. I always try to make my events intergenerational, but it's rare that I actually succeed. You know, maybe like 10% of the programming are older than 40 and the rest isn't maybe, maybe it's a little 15%, but uh, I interviewed a boomer, boomer, boomer art gallery, former gallerist, and every story she had began with like, and then we got this property, and then we had this property, and like her whole life, um, like lesbian relationships and compounds and galleries was all facilitated by having like cheap properties in and around New York and Miami and LA, and like it was jaw dropping because that's not um, going to be the locus that. Um, my peers congregate around is like, oh, we're going to rent this place together or go in and buy this place together. Like her relationships were organized by real estate, which was really fascinating to me. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I always feel like there's going to be a new place. Like you just eventually people are going to have to, I was joking the other day. I said, eventually like both of the Dakotas are going to become like artist colonies. Right. Yeah. People are interested in this, but then people like being in a place that's layered with history. Um, so I don't know. They can be like, that's where CBGB used to be. Yeah. People, people <laughs> love that shit. I know. But I mean, you know, you live there and you experience it like a couple of times. And you're like, all right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know if it'll be a new place. Maybe. Do you like New York? New York is challenging, but I like it. Yeah. How, and how long have you been there? I lived there for four years before moving back. Um, and oh, okay. I moved back somewhere between 12 and nine months ago. But again, it was one of those things where I kept going back and then eventually. So the official move when I like took my cat on the airplane and made us. Move. That's when you know January. it's real. That's yeah. when you know it's real. Yeah. When the cat is on the plane. Yeah, she was so mad. What was your cat's name? Or what is your cat's name? New. It's the cat in the book. The book is dedicated to her. N-O-O. -O. Okay. Uh, so you grow up in Canada. You go to high school in Canada. You're a gymnast. You're an actor. Well, I mean, I wanted to be an actor. I was actorly. People would probably say I was shy. It might have been all in my head. Any but anyway, I was more extroverted out in the world. You are than you are now. I think I'm returned. I've done. I've been trying to return to that self, but yeah, something shifted in my twenties um, when I became very, very uh, closed off and introverted and bookish. Why? I don't know. I haven't fully answered that question yet. Some answers are in the book. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with um, well, a few things. One going on to hormonal birth control and that really fucking up my psyche 
two probably like hereditary mental illness finally kicking in in combination with that hormonal birth control and like um the atheist upbringing but um soulfully felt other modes of belief faith systems coming into um clashing with one another and resulting in like a really banal kind of david foster wallace like ex- existential crisis um like queer questioning and insecurities around um what i should be in my body and in my relationship with other people and um and then moving to america from montreal was really shocking because it was a total culture shock it's it, i read um Balzac's lost illusions recently and related to it a lot in this idea of like the provincial person moving to the big city with vague ideas of what that will mean and then just getting like totally put through the ringer um, to new york mm-hmm. from montreal mm-hmm. see that was a very good comprehensive answer right like, i feel like but that, I, yeah and it just what it makes me think of and i guess it's different for different people but i think i think one's 20s are the hardest in a lot of ways or at least that was the case for me I'm just into my 30s, so I'll let you know. But I've been told that the 20s were, yeah, pretty fucked. And that's, oh, my book is about the 20s. It's about kids, I mean, like 21 to 29, basically, all navigating a different. And like coming of age, like I'm trying to place you chronologically. Like, I guess if you're 32 now, is that right? Uh-huh. Then that means what? You, how old were you when like 9 11 happened? That's how 14. I was. Yeah. And then, like after that, like or the, almost fourteen, the Great Recession. Like yeah. So you've grown up with just like, oh, well, this is the world. That's a lot. To, that's a lot of uh, big, grim stuff to have to move through and to be bearing the brunt of, you know, in some way. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of literature about how millennials got hit with a, um, a great, the Great Disillusionment, various promises that you were raised in in like a pre-internet era where the stories were delivered by like. Um, syndicated newspapers and tv shows and then um the recession depression and other things demonstrating the falsity of those promises at the same time as the internet when people could like call it out and that's happening with like but i I, we i talked about this with um psychoanalyst jameson webster at an event we did for exquisite mariposa in mcnally jackson last week and the that great disillusionment um it's only like a demographic of privileged white kids mostly that you know experience that i would say for the most part and so in some ways perhaps there's like a more democratic restart with millennials if besides the children of the one percent you mean the, the kids of the one percent are the ones who feel the disillusionment most no, acutely they, they might they might be the exception to the like um disappointment and disillusionment but well yeah well they're insulated from a lot of yeah it. but um otherwise yeah the like mi- middle class white kids are coming into a world where there aren't as many options as there had been for their parents in terms of resource acquisition at least if we're t- talking about resources material things what do you think they're not what do you think the like what do you think the consequences are going to be like how do you see them manifesting maybe in your own life and among your peers I have no idea. If I can know the future, I would know the future. <laughs> yeah, but you must have. But you you pay careful attention, and you're uh, um, 
you know, a, an astute observer of the culture, like you mm-hmm. have to have some sense of like at least general direction where things are heading. And I, I could like couch it in a specific right. question, like sure. in the absence of material resources that might've existed for, um, previous generations, the baby boomers in mm-hmm. particular, if a foreclosure of possibility, the accompanying disillusionment with political institutions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. economic institutions and systems of, um, of, uh, operation, mm-hmm. like what is the, what do you think the, the, like the broad response will be or the most powerful response? Would it be like, uh, a turning towards microdosing and meditation <laughs> and spiritual concerns? And like, no, I think that's a trend. That's just like a, a little short side effect, short lived side effect in people. I mean, Marshall McLuhan talks about a, a tri- tribalism return to some sort of tribalism, which I detect in my community of like, um, taking care of one another, um, because yeah, institutions aren't protecting you. A friend of mine is who works at the Mar- Marciano foundation is working on uni- unionizing that institution and the new museum and other institution art institutions are trying to unionize, um, which I think is necessary right now. Cause it, it's all there. That's in reaction to their precarious state where all these, um, uh, some institutions, the Marciano only keeps you on part time so that they don't have to give anybody health insurance. Right. Um, and a lot of young people at first liked this because it meant that they could work on their art practices in the other, you know, a part-time job is a great thing, but a part-time job, if you don't have, um, any social security or health insurance, um, and you're still making shit money and you have, um, no position to ask for more, you'll just get fired. And the next person will come in. It's like a really problematic thing to be trying to grow up with because health problems and stuff will come inevitably and people are really freaked out about the environment right now you know um there's a lot to be freaked out about there's a lot to be freaked out about but also i think you have to like every day um recognize that a lot of these they're not they're not not real the things to be freaked out about but they're not always like immediately as present as they feel they one might feel they are if you're reading the news all the time which i have a problem with yeah i'm always reading the news a lot of people with houses read the news a lot. The boomers read the news a lot and they're very like sensational. I mean, the news is like an entertainment enterprise and people can make careers. It's like, like there's this, like, this trend right now that I um, bemoan among millennials of the like, quote unquote, political people basically just being like entertainment political pundits. You're like, oh yeah, that's like a political person of our generation. But really they're just people sitting in front of microphones like this talking about politics and not organizing right. um, or doing anything to actually help anyone except they're just taking like it's they're participating in the int- attention economy and i think that's really dangerous everything being entertainment or yeah but i also feel like we're profiting I, off of that system profiting off of the fear system yeah no doubt about it i mean being like sometimes i you know if you ever watch cable news and you see like the pundit class in action you're like how do these people get these microphones <laughs> Like who puts these people but on we TV? We love to hate watch and hate listen. Yeah, but people we... like to feel like brushed up against something. The reactionary, like counterforce. Well, clearly, I mean, they must. The people, whoever's deeply invested in television ratings, must know more than I do about mm-hmm. this. But like, as a population, as a citizenry, we deserve way better. Yeah, and way better. every person has to make that decision. There's a Simone Weil quote, which is "Attention is the sincerest form of generosity." And I think you have to be like very, very mindful about who and what you give your attention to. And that includes time, money, no, 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 no. But a lot of us do get caught up in like the enemy, um, 
and fantasies about various enemies and fears. And there are bad actors, though, right? Would you agree? Yeah. So and like, like because I I wonder. I'm like I'm constantly I'm following what's happening in the United States carefully because mm-hmm. I feel like it's treacherous mm-hmm. and dangerous mm-hmm. and consequential for not only me but for my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always paid attention. I think you should pay attention. I, I think, think yeah. you can overdo it. Yeah. So it's about like finding the sweet spot, I guess. But I also think that there needs to be somebody or some, somebody's, you know, there needs to be multiple people who, um, make it their business to sift through this muck and uh, to, yeah, and to sure. be media literate and to try to parse it. And it's not for everybody, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but I have like maybe a higher tolerance for it than some people. <laughs> Mm. but then maybe I'm just, maybe that's just my line to myself. And what I really am is like, you know, addicted to the enemy or whatever that emotional, you know, psychodrama that it delivers. Yeah. I mean, news became a 24 hour thing in the nineties, right? And advertisement news TV. And now it's like 24 seven on the internet and television. Whereas earlier, you know, we would get, glimpses of the global happenings maybe through newspaper you know it's just different we're living in a different time where i think our brains are like reaching all over the globe and back and forth in time constantly all all day long um and that's fascinating and could bring about like a new consciousness that's what some people say the age of aquarius the new age is about is about like uh collective consciousness and that's what the internet is like a tool to get us to that space where we are um, existing in a time that isn't just um, whatever the clock time that we've had before us, like today is, you know, 12.45 p.m. Um, but at the same time, then you have to also, I think, reprioritize the present and, like, the the body's time because the body and the mind, I don't know. This is, like, I haven't fully articulated this, but I think Mary Post has a bit about this and has musings about how the, the body is, like, a, a technology that has evolved, right? and the brain, including the body, over a long time, before these new technologies that we have. And I think the body's, like, um, maybe slower to adapt or something. I I think some of the mental illness that I see among my peers has something to do with um, cognition doing something that it hasn't, the body isn't evolved yet to deal with or something. I don't know. I completely agree. (laughs) I completely agree. I think what we're in the midst of with our phones and with our apps, whatever they are, social media or dating apps or anything that grabs your attention Mm-mm-mm. and has an addictive property mm-hmm. by design. Mm-mm-mm. It's not just an accident. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that the only way that I can see it is as like a huge unprecedented experiment Yeah. that we are the sub, we are the willing subjects of whether mm-hmm. we know it or not. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what the consequences of this like are exactly mm-hmm. in terms of how it affects our cognition, how it, how it affects our emotional processing, yeah, nervous system, our, our ability to yeah. focus and concentrate and process information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, um, it's not a guarantee that it's good. I think a lot of us instinctively feel like it's not working out so well, at least in, in part, you know, it's not, I don't want to paint with one big broad brush, but sure. I certainly have many quiet moments where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing to my brain with this phone, <laughs> you know, and this Twitter. And, 
Um, wouldn't I just be happier if I just had a phone where I could just text people and I just read the paper or read books? I think maybe it's like, not don't think about taking stuff away, but think about adding even more. So like, it's not taking the phone away and going back to some analog, but like, what do you need to add to your life to um, rebalance? So do you need to add more like strenuous physical activity and like no i'm constantly doing that <laughs> i don't know I trying don't to know. wear myself out yeah um that that yeah i mean you know it's like i feel like i'm pretty booked up but i feel like i'm regimented i think part of this is having a family you know it, it, the, having a family seems like the hardest thing. i mean it's like incredibly i had this fantasy about having a kid but even just taking care of my cat is so difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you have to be regimented. It's not like you make a choice, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. now we're going to like, you just have to go through the paces and your kid has to nap and your kid has to mm-hmm, eat and mm-hmm, your kid has mm-hmm, to go to bed. Mm-hmm. And then you're at home because the kid's upstairs and you yeah. can't just go out. Yeah. And then you also got to go to bed early because your kid's going to be up at five, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And you have to provide for the kid yeah. and teach the kid. Yeah. It's like insane. So, uh, you know, I try to fit into my life stuff other than me staring at my phone or my computer, but there's only so many hours in the day. Mm-mm-mm-mm. But you're reading books, right? This is like, you have a, this is my refuge. Right. This show is my refuge. Just having conversations mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that are not mediated right. or interrupted constantly. Uh, and that hopefully, you know, get somewhere interesting, which they usually do, at least for me. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, uh, I like, I, I don't know. I miss this. And it's like the only, like, I'm not great at a, I went to a dinner this past weekend and I had a lovely time, but it was like in a room at a restaurant and there are like 20 people at this long rectangular table. And so you couldn't really talk to everybody. You had to sort of just talk to who you were next to. Get up and move. I know we did. We did like everyone took turns shifting. So you would talk to different people, but I'm just like, I just noticed, I was like, you know what? I'm much better with just like a couple of people or like one person. Right. Yeah. Um, like I find it exhausting to be in like a loud, crazy conversation and you can only get like a little bit. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm, like, can mm-hmm. we just like take a time out? I just want to like actually. That's why people take smoke breaks. I used to smoke. Yeah. But then I had kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you smoke? Uh, here and there, but not regularly. I like I have a pack in my bag now because I thought I would want it on the trip and it's the first pack I'd bought since early September. Can I guess what kind of cigarettes you smoke? Mm. American spirit. Mm -hmm. Yellow pack. This is a blue pack. I'm always buying different black pack was my default. Uh Just like smoky. Yeah. Um, last time I bought a pack of cigarettes and it was like the first pack I bought in again, months I had had, I don't drink very much. I had had two Negronis. So I was like faded and off to Negroni. Yeah. I'm, I'm a lightweight. I don't drink. Um, it's fun not drinking because then when you drink, it's like a real experience, but I bought the nude pack cause I thought it was, you know, like what is a nude pack? Well, beige, beige, oh, beige. Okay. Yeah. Nude with like my pink ass skin. Yeah. Um, and it's filter. They were filterless, which was really <laughs> challenging to smoke. And it took me two months to smoke those. Yeah. American spirits are like hard to drag. They don't... I kind of like that. It makes you do it slow and I don't inhale too, too much. It's more about the oral fixation than anything. I'm really upset over the straw drought. This like whole idea that straws are bad. Um, because often I go to the, like the high end coffee shops right now, all cut out straws because they're trying to look like eco or whatnot. 
But the only reason I drink iced coffees and iced teas is to have the straw. I only realized this when they were taken away. So I keep finding myself like ordering a coffee and then they're not having a straws and having to like walk to um, like the coffee bean or subway or somewhere where they haven't had this like corporate meeting where they decided to go with the trend that straws are bad and having to take a straw from there. Paper straws and they don't have like an alternative like paper straws. They... They're okay. I'll deal with a paper straw. If they sell a metal straw at the cash register, I'll buy one and then carry it around a little bit for a while. But I used to this have, gets gross. Like what's and inside? You have to wash it yeah. pretty regularly and I don't have a dishwasher. But anyway, smoking, I haven't been smoking because the air outside tastes like ash because of all the fires. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like, like really you're, disgusting. You're already smoking. You're smoking. Yeah, it's just, disgusting. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. It's been worse. I mean, I still go hiking in the morning. Is, mm. is it bad? I mean, if you don't, sometimes I don't notice it. I think I've been noticing it because I've been away. And so it's the contrast. And now you live, what, do you live in Brooklyn or? I live on the Upper East Side. Oh, you do? Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, how's it working out? Like you came out here. Why, first of all, why did you come from New York to LA the first time or the only time, I guess? Uh, well, I was living in New York City and uh, learning what capitalism was and all this exciting stuff. And the last apartment that I lived in before moving was an artist loft in um, Crown Heights like a big queer artist loft, their sister lofts. Um, and I kept getting, feeling like really weird. And, um, but I couldn't, I thought maybe I was just like sick in the head, like woozy and irritable and whatnot. And was complaining about it. All my roommates were like, no. Um, and then I got sick and went to a emergency care clinic and they were like, you're just dehydrated. Here's a Gatorade let me take $300 from you and send you back home. Didn't offer to do blood work, didn't offer to do anything. And I was like, like I'd almost passed out on my way to the emergency care clinic. I was like purple and falling. My friend Durga was carrying me. And I went back home and like decided for some reason it was February that I would open all the windows in the front loft and only sleep by the windows. Um, and like started to feel better. And then a couple of days later was flying to the Czech Republic for two months just to escape New York. Cause I'd had been feeling weird, quote unquote weird in New York. Anyway, that very night that I flew, um, still feeling sick. All my roommates ended up in, um, the hospital because of carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my God. And, uh, I thought you were going to say mold. No, but there was black mold. Also there was like, there was like mold and carbon monoxide poisoning in this apartment. And so I like restored in the woods in the Czech Republic for, um, what do you mean the woods? Like just out in Moravia. It was like a, a few hours. Yeah, it was the woods. I don't know. It was like hillside. We didn't see anybody. How did you wind up there? I was dating someone who was from there and it was his father's summer home, but it was winterized, but no one was there. So we decided to go there for the winter to just work. Um, did you work on Mariposa while you were there? Uh, uh, I was still like, I only started Mariposa when I moved to LA. Um, I was learning to write fiction then. I was like tooling around, but it was terrible. I was trying to write sci-fi and uh, it was really unsatisfying. It was like the idea of a book instead of a book. And then, like, yeah. So when did you decide that you wanted to try your hand at this and like get into writing? Um, well, I, when I moved to New York, I've swiftly um, started doing fashion and arts journalism and enjoyed that because the first place I worked at, they gave me complete, um, autonomy and I could write whatever I want. Where was this? It was a magazine called bullet. I didn't, I wasn't crazy about it, but I really liked my editor. I didn't like the, there was things I didn't like about it, but I was very much like do whatever you can 
do you know yeah. I, beggars can't be my grandmother always said that beggars can't be choosers piano which is actually a terrible thing to be taught because it makes you um undermine yourself a lot and think that you're a beggar when you're not um but they let me do a lot and but then when i went more freelance because i had this idea of working for something that had a bit more notoriety or you know respectability or something um not notoriety that means bad but yeah more establishment right um i mean the freelance the journalistic whatever writing industry is fucked it's so hard it's fucked and it was like i started doing it right when the internet was like like the the word content um and producing content came about in my second year Uh working um and this like need of clickbait like those were all terms that were coined or popularized in my first few years working uh none of it none of it sounds good right i mean like all that no, stuff it just it ends up we just produce a lot of junk right it's like fast fashion or fast food or something like that um people are pontificating or repeating things and writing lists and some of it's entertaining for sure but the best content online is probably just memes like um individually driven memes um or created but I just realized that what I wanted to, what I cared to write about that I thought would fit in fic, in journalism rather, because it had in previous eras, like new journalism, um, Joan Didion or Truman Capote or critical writing, Sontag, James Baldwin, da, 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 um, didn't live in magazines anymore. And so the only way that I could talk about big things that I wanted to talk about was in fiction. Or, um, you know, or you could start your own little online publication but right and i did a little bit of that and really enjoyed it but again i think a lot of publications are just um either a front for a brand or a front for um a socialite like a rich person right yeah, and i like was a, neither it's like a hobby mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of how a lot of the publishing houses yes that's also true <laughs> there's just like a little bit like paychecks are a bit bigger yeah but i mean like you go back in time to the founding of these things it's usually it's the like, same thing it's like a big rich family yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, we have all this money. Yeah, the and patronage system hasn't changed that much. It just looks different. Right. Or it's like more piecemeal or something. So you make a decision, like in, like as a result of that experience, like I'm going to try to write a book. Uh, I think, yeah, it just seemed like wasteful to be writing as many words as are in a book every year, just to make like 12k and have it disappear on the internet. If you're going to be working that much and writing that much, you might as well make something that's like going to get you more attention yeah and like that you and have, have more substance and autonomy over and whatnot yeah right so you go you leave the carbon monoxide flat mm-hmm. you go to the czech republic mm-hmm. you work on what um i ended up writing this article that i'd been commissioned to write that i thought would take me like a week and it ended up taking me months um that also doesn't exist it was on a website called all day every day that was a branding again one of these like a branding company that had a culture front by the way can we talk about branding yeah it's a big business mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i have i have i'm like i cannot believe how much money is involved in this like facebook just rebranded mm. and now they're all capital letters and i have very strong oh. negative feelings about facebook that... so they just made it even louder they're like screaming at you now but i'm also like somebody got paid a shit ton of money to go all caps and use this like font that we all have yeah i know some people who do this kind of stuff for various different online publications i know people who work in branding i guess it's i guess you gotta have it but i'm just like man uh it seems like a uh 
seems like a con or something. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. That's the right. You're convincing. It's the confidence man and conviction and convincing. It's a con. And some people think there's um, creativity in it or they're excited by people I know who do um, justify it by like, we're going to influence through, you know, through pop culture, we're going to create positive influence or whatnot. But it often, more often ends up backfiring on them. And then they like go away with their tail between their legs that their experiment in um, revolutionizing commerce by putting artistic gestures in branding enterprises failed. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of old school. I believe in like art, art. Yeah, I do too. So what's the, but at the same time, we all have to make a living. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Like, how do you, you know what I'm saying? Like trying to thread that needle. Very hard. And to do it in a way that has integrity and that you feel good about. And then you feel like you're not putting something toxic into the world. Very, very hard. Yeah. That's the struggle, isn't it? It's a very, it's a contemporary struggle and it's a privileged struggle also to even be getting to weigh these things. Um, and I think the more you talk with people working in all sorts of fields, the more you realize we're all kind of in the same boat. Architects are trying to balance this, you know, filmmakers, da, 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 and there's different ways that it happens in each one. But I think being a lot of people put up the front, like um, individual artists right now need to pretend like they're not doing this often because success is like you, you need to project the image of success to maybe court it. If that makes sense. It's exhausting. Yeah. I find. Yeah. I I know people who, um, you know, different people advise me along the way of different things to do. You either get quote unquote, a real, a day job and you wake up early and you write, or you figure out some sort of enterprise that you can make a lot of money off of with, um, fewer hours expended. And then you're free to make your work about whatever you want. You can try to get brand sponsorship. Like there's, I know there's all sorts of different business models and arrangements and none of them are, they all have their compromises. Yeah. And you know, the thing too, cause I played this game in my head is that like, let's say you work for a weapons manufacturer mm-hmm. and you're making weapons and these weapons are getting exported and they're doing no good. Mm-hmm. You know, they're killing machines. Mm-hmm. If you quit that job on some, you know, you take some sort of principled stand and you have an awakening and you say, I'm done with this. I'm not participating in this anymore. Yeah. You quit that job. Somebody else will take it. Yeah. I hear that argument, but I think at the end of the day, you have to live with your life, you know, and the prioritizing of your values, I think is really important and will reverberate in the world, like cosmically and interpersonally and whatnot. So that idea that like, if, if I don't, do it. Someone else is going to do it is kind of like, yeah, I think, but I mean, I guess like, I I think like I would be clapping for somebody who decided to walk away from a job that was really toxic and creating, Mm -hmm. um, you know, negative outcomes. But I think too, I can sometimes be persuaded that like, if someone's got to do that job, it should be somebody who's like conscious (laughs) and like feeling like they have, um, I don't know, a moral stake in it that goes beyond just like, I need a paycheck and sure. I don't know the right answers. I haven't, I don't know that many people who have had that particular, you don't know a lot of weapons manufacturers. (laughs) I know children (laughs) of weapons manufacturers who are pretty fucked up about it and have refused to take their family's money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it does, it does matter. I think how we make a living and yet it's so hard just to make a living in this world. Yes, yeah. I think a particularly American dilemma, 
because of the nature of work and markets here. It's not the same in Canada. I mean, I, I'm not Canada is not like a utopia by any means, but you can be a public school teacher and have a life and like not get so burnt out and demoralized and fucked up. And it can be like a really good, decent life and you have free time in the summer and like get paid decent and have healthcare. And like, that's it. I think that's a pretty, so why are you way. here? Why did you come to the States to participate <laughs> in this madness? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's also a question is a line in the book of why ambitious Canadians, so few ambitious Canadians stay in Canada. Yeah, you, I like the hecticness of it. I like certain um, heights. There's a, a term called small pop, small, wait, tall poppy syndrome. Have you heard this? Mm -mm. When you go, when you look it up, they say that it applies to Australia also, but I don't know if that's true, but tall poppy uh, syndrome is like, a culture wherein we don't like anybody to rise over too high. So oh, the right. field has to be level. Yeah. So every time someone rises too high, you cut snip it down. And I do think that there is like a mutual inhibition or in Canada a little bit. Uh, I don't know how it, if it's like how conscious it is to not, um, yeah, strive too high. And I, th I, I like ambition and I like people. Um, do you like ambition? Mm -hmm. I have a complicated relationship with it. Mm -hmm. I like, I guess it matters what you're ambitious for. And also if you expect results, if you're just like ambition, it's like, I'm going to go on the ride and see what happens. But if you're like, I must have this result and I'm ambitious and this is what I need to get. I think that's really dangerous because you can blind yourself to what the repercussions of your actions are. But if you're like playfully ambitious, I like playfully ambitious people like who want to just see what, where it will lead. What are you ambitious to do? Like, what are your ambitions? Um, my ambitions, I'd like to write a second book. I've started thinking about it. Um, it has a lot to do with Canadian and American different values and sort of escalated current in terms of, um, social, so social services and whatnot in the States versus Canada. Um, but with like very much lit literary ambitions and getting more into fiction and seeing what that ha has yeah i want um people in my world to feel good and to have a good time together and uh witness one another's lives it would be nice to uh understand better what's happening with ecology and our earth and to get more embedded in that uh reality want my cat to live a long life and they for, seem like very healthy ambitions <laughs> yeah <laughs> by the time she's old and needs um more vet care i'll be able to afford it hopefully that's like a, one of the probably the most um, biggest ambition yeah you know i just like i guess like there's a part of me that sort of likes tall poppy like like well, like i look around in a general way and everybody's striving and especially like in the arts like there's so many people striving for like mm -hmm. 10 seats at the table mm-hmm and people are competitive and I don't like that. I don't know. I, like, it's I just like, you should strive to make more seats. Yeah. I think that's fun. I don't, yeah. I, the tribalism thing also, I think it's like cool to be recognized within a tight community that are all recognizing each other. And you think you're all like 
great, but maybe you step outside of that and people are like, who's that? They're not famous. But you know what? That's more and more the case. Yeah, I think so. But definitely like, that's I happening. The, I don't have a first clue what's on television. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what's in the movie theaters mm-hmm. practically mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. what records are coming out. I don't even know what I pay attention to. I pay attention to books. Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, everybody's got a narrative. Like it's so fractalized and there's so much media coming at people and information that mm-hmm. you can only pay attention to like a little bit of it. Otherwise your head's going to explode. Yeah. I like thinking about culture in terms of ecology and maybe there's like a proliferation of different ecosystems right now that are, you know, pollinating each other or like, yeah, feeding each other. And that those are, you know, there is a whole web and it's all connected inevitably, but there are like, you know, this bee goes to that flower or whatnot. And there's that mutual relationship and there can be many ecosystems of culture and art. Yeah. And I think it's cool that you're invested in building community mm-hmm. and like, it seems like you see it as like, like part and parcel to your creative work. Is that accurate? I mean, or, or is it something separate? Yeah, absolutely. But also because, um, we need when I, you know, when I first moved to New York, I started writing and that was largely due to the help of other female writers, Sarah Nicole Prickett among them who helped me, um, find editors and outlets and helped even edit my work. Like there was a reciprocity and a recognition of mutual interest because we're stronger with more of us because what we're competing against were like grossly patriarchal structures. Um, I was going to say women are way better at like, I think lending a hand to one another and building community. Necessity, right. It's different women and queer folk and like all sorts of different communities who recognize each other. Yeah. Um, a, a sisterhood or, um, yeah, communities of allies. And I hope that the communities of allies don't get too um, cut along identity politics lines because I think that can be really boring. And that's not really the case with my friend group, but I do see that happening at least online or it appears that way. Um, So yeah, I think it's really boring to always be like, my body is this, therefore I'm going to associate with these people. Or yeah, I was born into randomly this structure. I think it's more interesting when people like I'm passionate about this or I feel such and such a way or I've these intellectual proclivities and that is what um, the mutual interests and communities are based out of. But everybody's different. I think building community is a skill and I think it's like a very valuable one. Like not everybody can do it, um, but I feel like we need it. You know, I think people in general, maybe Americans especially, need to find ways to connect in a meaningful way with one another that doesn't, um, happen solely online or, Mm -hmm. you know, at a, at a remove. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard work. I think about it a lot. Like, I think this is like this show in its way, but I guess it's at a remove, you know, It, it fosters some sort of community, which I like, but I think like in my day to day life, I wish I had more like IRL interaction with people. Well, the family was a locus for this, right? Community, at least in the 20th century, the nuclear family was like where you had these bonds of helping one another. But at least, especially in a queer community, a lot of us maybe didn't fit into our family bonds or are invested in creating different types of kinship. And so the family is not going to be the primary source of our like um, interpersonal fulfillment so I do, I'm, yeah, I'm curious what it's like for families, um, and having communities. I like my friends who have kids and I like having families be part of an extended community because I might not have kids and at least then I can access 
something of what that experience is like through others. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's great. Um, it's hard work, but it's, it's wonderful. I don't know where I would be without it. I also had like a really happy childhood. So I had like great parents and siblings and I was, it was modeled for me. Like, right. like this is fun. This yeah, is yeah, happy. Yeah. People want to reproduce what you, yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. think like I never imagined myself doing anything. I always imagined myself having kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't give it like, I also didn't give it like rigorous thought the way I feel like young people in particular, people younger than I am. And some people, my own age, you know, some people think way more deeply about it than I ever did. Um, there's definitely a trade-off, you know, you, there are things you can do when you don't have kids that you can't do when you do Mm -hmm, and vice mm -hmm, versa. mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's like a right answer. I think it's just whatever feels right for you. But I think that where I have moved away, maybe not that I was ever super dogmatic about it, but I think I've, I've wised up and realized that like, there's lots of different ways to do life and you can be, I mean, I I guess I always sort of knew it, but it's become clear to me Mm -hmm. that you can do life a multitude of ways and Mm -hmm. be perfectly happy. And it's, you know, it doesn't have to involve 2.5 kids in a house in the suburbs or whatever. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. When I was writing the book, I was interested in like witch mysticism and all these things. And I visited with some witches and, in and LA? witches are trendy. Yeah. Did what, you visit with, um, the, the Oracle of LA by any chance? I had visited with her. Yeah. She, She's been on the show. So yeah, cool. She, I like, I like Amanda and, but she had told me, and maybe this was like, it's very likely that witches tailor their um, interaction with you to what you need. Like, there's probably a lot more, in, you know, it's likely that this was not her um, dogma. But I remember her saying that in order to test our magical prowess, we need to be asking for very material things to know if we got And we have to be really specific. So she was like, um, you know, what do you want? I was like, I don't know what I want. I want to be happy, you know, like very vague things. And she was like, no, 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 you should be asking. Like, I want to live on Mount Washington and write for the first half of my day and do yoga and have sex for the rest of it. And that's what your wish is. And you have to think about what you need for that. So you need like XXX. I want to be doing it by these means. And you have to ask for that specific thing. And it's very possible that that works for some people. But then I met with another person who's like, no, 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 no. You have to pray for a feeling because if you ask for something material, it's like that old, the three wishes, um, fable that people like to say, it'll like, it won't be as you expect it to be. You know, you'll get what it, it'll appear like what you want, but let's say your Mount Washington house will be haunted by fleas and your cat will constantly have fleas. You know, there'll be something off about it. You're having sex and you're itching. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and it'll, it'll be that. And so you have to pray for a feeling. And that's, I think for me, more accurate. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm not a super religious person. I'm sort of agnostic. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know what's going on. But I do find myself saying what I guess you would call prayers on a regular basis. And like, I will often pray for like my son's health because that's like really sacred to me and I'm worried about him and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, who am I praying to? And like, is it going to work? And like, I don't know. I don't know. But I I feel like can't hurt. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't know how much, uh, 
I don't know. I don't know how much time to spend on it. And yet I find myself doing it and then like recognizing that I'm doing it and questioning it as I'm doing it. And yet I, I won't stop doing it. I don't know what else to do. I think the power of intention and the power of thoughts really important. What yeah. else are you going to do? You know, your brain's going to go somewhere. You might as well try to put it towards something that you like heartfully believe in. Yeah. So where are you spiritually? Do you have like a, can you define it for yourself? No, I think, um, and this, the book, Mary Post is definitely like about a spiritual journey or trying to, um, come to one's, come to some understanding of faith. And by the way, I'm totally down with that. Yeah. I think we, I, I like books like that. Yeah. I mean, I was raised very atheist and materialist and it just wasn't part of the discussion. Um, there's a mysticism to my father for sure. The way that he approaches science gets to almost the same place that I get to, but I did it through language, I think, um, language and like um, microdosing. Yeah, exactly. Language <laughs> and physical experience. He did it more through science and like, um, observation of his, more, um, sm smaller town every day. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, it's when spirituality and religious stuff is brought into the interpersonal, into the human to human, it gets really like corrupt. Like, I think it's really important to have, for me, it's important to have a relationship to, um, some sort of cosmic sense or feeling or higher power or God or whoever you want to call it. But I am, um, reluctant to invoke it in uh the day-to-day -day or in between people because i think corruption and like abuses of power come really quickly follow and like tricks trickster stuff meaning that people you come into contact with i mean i'm not going to talk about it and i'm not going to like there's a trend right now to say that you're blessed you know and then there's memes that counter it like maybe you're blessed and maybe you're manifested, but maybe it's just white privilege. You know, like I think we can pick belief systems that suit our ego interests. And that's very common. And we can instrumentalize belief systems to pursue our own egoic interests. Yeah. Right. I'm blessed. And it's like, Oh yeah, you're also born on third base. Yeah. So what about the person who happened to just have the bad luck of being born into like a rough socioeconomic situation? Uh -huh. I believe in chance. I think chance is part of things. I think there's fate i think like kind of like every concept that we have all hap is happening simultaneously and if there is that concept in the world that's like part of reality and it's just like all happening and it's not just one thing and if you believe certain things they're more likely to come to the surface if that makes sense yeah and do you have like do you have any kind of like practice like you say you learned meditation when you were microdosing is that something you do regularly i try to meditate but i don't do it as much as i used to i mean whenever i run an event I, I can be very shy so before the event i just have to do some sort of focusing exercise in order to get myself in a space of openness and not thinking that i'm like the greatest piece of shit in the world and i'm everybody <laughs> hates me and it's gonna go terribly you know right have to be like you don't know what's gonna happen it's gonna be okay um i don't know i just try to take care of myself and um take care of other people and uh, not privilege my desires over others, but live, not deny them either. And live a good life. Yeah, we try. It's, I mean, it's not easy always. Lots of shit happens. What do you see in the future for yourself? Like, obviously you want to, you said you want to publish another book. Mm 
Um, you're in New York for now. I feel like you move around a bit, or at least you bounce back and I forth. I have been bouncing back and forth. I'm still doing events. I'm more and more interested in big steps. I think I w- I didn't I didn't think I was allowed to be an artist. I didn't even I didn't let myself even entertain the possibility that I could be ever um, until the process of writing exquisite miracles. But it was obviously something I was like very bent on doing and becoming. But I was so ashamed and didn't uh, lack the entitlement or confidence in um, my capacity to do that. So I uh, was very confused and was always just putting myself in the service of other people. Like, I'll just help out this artist or like, you know, the secretary too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's great and noble and really important. I still want to do that because I, but I think that we should be taking turns helping one another, you know, like Nabokov and his wife. You know, maybe he could have helped her write. You know, I don't know if she wanted to write books, but she was like his secretary and his transcriber and all this stuff, editor, da, 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 da. But in my ideal relationship, you're both the artist, but also both like support staff of various ilk. So I'm not removing that, but for the first time, I'm letting myself um, feel what it could be like to not be inhibited and ashamed of the desire to be an artist and to um, work on that. And so playing with different modalities. So what were you ashamed of? Like just the, just the having the desire, which felt shameful to you. Yeah. Like, who do you think you are? You're not special. And you know, that's like partly tall poppy syndrome, but also, um, a, some, like a belief system within my family. Um, and th- personally within the family, like there's like reasons for it that are complicated and, um, also probably some misunderstandings along the way. Maybe you could say it had something to do with being a Virgo, which is all about like service towards others rather than like, um, valuing self the self-expression um but i think yeah i didn't think i was allowed to want that and that to want that would be narcissistic Mm -hmm. um and individualistic and cruel and unjust and so what helped because i think there are going to be people listening Mm. who relate to that Mm -hmm. and you obviously pushed through and Mm -hmm. wrote this book and published this book Mm -hmm. like what work did you do what questions did you have to answer what advice did you get that helped you like write the ship and find your way well they say artists get out of their own way like you just have to be like it's not about you you have to really focus i think on form and material and like get really obsessed with the work and forget yourself obviously to be a working artist, you have to perform a self and you have to be like an administrator and a financier to yourself. You know, there's like lots of things where the ego has to come into play to help dire- direct it and get it in the right. You know, I had to be that way when I was communicating with editors and negotiating contracts. But in terms of the making the work itself, you have to like do. I, I guess I was like, I'm in, I'm being in service of the work and of the history of language and poetics and sexuality you know like it's more about the the material right like yeah i guess yeah sometimes i just can't get out of my own way yeah you got you have to learn to get out of your own way but that's a really that's like where going out of your own mind helps a bit did you ever do any uh psychotherapy uh maybe i i had a antagonistic relationship to therapists i tried to see them here and there but i always break up with them like very shortly because i never thought they were um like helping and i had uh issues with spending paying for it when i was struggling so you know if i'm like living off of 200 dollars a week and 40 dollars of it is towards therapy i'd be like oh i'd rather spend that 40 dollars on food right. or clothes because i have a clothing 
um, habit. Um, you like clothes. Love clothes. Yeah. Love clothes. Uh, so I saw a few and I liked those experiences. I'm really obsessed with the psychoanalyst and author Jameson Webster. Um, I've, never heard New of, York. I've never heard of him. She writes challenging. Sure, she has a, re- a new book called Conversion Disorder. I think it's the, listening to the body and psychoanalysis. And I have an interview with her coming out in the White Review, which is like a UK-based literary and art publication. Um, very, very in- like high intellect and um, it's not, I think it's Columbia University Press. Like it's not a popular psycho logical text and we talked about um she was like did you ever think about writing more popularly and i was like i thought i did i thought i was writing like a pop fiction book and she was like no 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 no. your book is like kind of esoteric and challenging i was like damn it (laughs) um because um people in her life some of them haven't tried to encourage her to become more of an adam phillips um like very popular writer because she has really important things to say but she is pretty dedicated to these like um traditions with big vocabularies. Well, and you can't be, I mean, speaking, uh, in the literary sense, like, you know, you can't try to be popular. You can only write the books you have to write. Well, exactly. And you have to like really be honest about who you care about. And I was like, I'm always really critical of the people who are popular. I was like, they're full of shit. They're just repeating the most conventional things that are like current. You know, I like the, the freakier or like cult figure and excavated. So you're like, I guess that's the bet I'm going to, I've made. Yeah. And you sort of like, you you have like your heroes, I think that you look to as like guiding lights and you try to emulate in some way. Yeah. When I was writing Exquisite Mary Post, I was really obsessed with looking at the lives of the heroes to understand how they did it. And there's a bit in the book also about how William Burroughs was on an allowance until his fifties. You know, a lot of these counterculture figures were like trust fund kids who were just quote unquote slumming it. Um, which you still see a version of that happening in pop culture and like influencer culture right now, I think. Uh, but there's of course exceptions. I did the same thing. Also. I did the same. I'm, like, I think this show is an extension of it, but mm-hmm. my early part of my career in my twenties every day, and this is back when I would like print out, I would print out like an interview with an author or an artist that mm-hmm. I was either fascinated by or had some admiration for. And I would, I just read interviews endlessly mm-hmm. and also like biography and memoir mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to tr- because I'm fascinated by how the fuck did they do it? Right. And you learn a lot. Like one of the great, uh, or the, like the stickiest stories to me is that Ralph Waldo Emerson mm-hmm. was married to this woman that she was like, I want to say 18, you know, you married very young back then. Um, or a lot of people did. And then she got like tuberculosis or something and died like a year and a half after they got married. Mm. So now he's like a a widower and she came from a wealthy family Mm -hmm. and he wound up suing her family for her portion, like for her money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And he lived mm -hmm. off of it for like basically the rest of his life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm like, listen, I'm not here to like litigate that too much. But I just like, as a practical matter, like as a, how does, how does Ralph Waldo Emerson sit around reading, you know, books every day and writing yeah. essays? Well, it was like, oh, well his life was paid for, Yeah, you know, and that's a very common tale. It's not always the tale, but it's often the tale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Burroughs did, what, what did his family, his family invented something like a, it was manufacturing of some sort of like, not a typewriter, but like some sort of like physical thing, manufacturing. Like telex or something, not like yeah, that. Yeah. I think it's like called that. the Burroughs company. Um, trying to think of other examples they're not all like that some people try to 
be marketable. Some people are teachers, you know? Yeah. No, some people look, they, some they, people just lucked out cause the economy was like, okay. At a certain point yeah. or something, or they just caught like some weird caught wave, a wave, Yeah, you know, that yeah. happens too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's hard to game. And I think that I think a lot about six, like quote unquote success, you know, whatever popular notion of success that we have, Oh, you've got a lot of followers or you're famous or you've made this big pile of money. Mm-hmm. I guess those are the way, you know, those are the ways that we define it, but Americans, Americans and not art world people. You don't think art world people define success through maybe through the money part, but there is like a, still a contingent of like hypercritical, um, elitists who I adore, who, um, are trying to value things based on the quality of the work itself. And, you know, if you've never been shown and you've worked in S, you know, in your house, the whole, your whole life, or like have uh, refuted these systems or found your own way, that's like very valuable in itself. Like it's not just a friend. I'm, I knew this girl who was an influencer and she was once just like, it's all about popularity. Everything's just about popularity. And she was fair, yeah, functioning from this like post high school right into internet modality that like numbers are what matter, but there is a, a group of people, there's communities or cohorts who are valuing it differently based on like whether you get critical reviews in this one, like German journal or are shown here. And it doesn't necessarily mean money or fame or numbers. Yeah. I think we, I think we would all do well to like spend a lot of time meditating on what success actually means to us. Yeah, You have to define your values, like your j- true values. I, but I, you know, I just read this article that, uh, this op-ed that Martin Scorsese wrote about the Marvel movies. I don't mm. know if you've, did you ever see that where he made a comment about how I saw like a tweet about it, but I didn't read the article. Yeah. So anyway, he was just saying like, you know, you get into a, I think he said something about this or maybe somebody was reacting to what he said, but it's basically like the, you know, we're in a, in a place now culturally where like, the amount of money that a movie makes is sort of everything regardless of mm-hmm. that's the way cinema's gone. Yeah. And it's just like depressing to me. It's so, like, Oh, oh, it made $180 million at the box office in a weekend. It's great. Yeah. Like that's sort of the calculation that I think people make. And like, I feel it around me. People mm-hmm. go, Oh, it must be amazing if it made all this money. And I'm like, well, maybe, but it's fucking star no, Wars. Because I mean, then that's the same as like our president must be amazing because everybody only focuses on him and talks about him. People love to hate watch and they'll eat and take in whatever's like most readily accessible and whatnot. I think the cinema, you know, theater before had these issues because theater became this like popular medium before and then cinema took over and then cinema had some like, um, you know, the Hollywood system structures and there was like independent, you know, there's like, it's just like mediums go through different phases of freedom and wildness. And I think like the spirit of art and the spirit of freedom moves between different mediums and you just kind of have to follow that rather than get um, attached to one particular form. Where do you think we are right now? How do you feel about like publishing in books and the spirit of it? Yeah, I think it's po- it's possible that it could have like a resurgence. I think more pe- people have been telling me that more and more people are interested in books because of you don't need anything besides a laptop, but you could write it at a public library, you know, and save. You don't need that much resources to do it. So there is freedom. And because um, there's almost like an underground nature to um, 
books potentially um, in the same way that like comic books or pornography were places for like countercultural sentiment at different times because um, they were not like scrutinized in the same way literature might not be but then again I visited with all like agents who represent the top five publishers quote unquote and they're mostly selling celebrity cookbooks and celebrity memoirs ghostwritten you know they're it's like they're hawking in the same stuff that I per- personally think is junk occasionally taking on a new literary voice once they've been vouched by more independent presses and the press um, and you know living off of the um, these prestige authors who you know may, are either like in the last legs of their careers and lives or dead but they're not taking very many risks um but then that means that individuals can take risks even if the institutions aren't yeah i mean that's where the indie presses i think are doing great mm-hmm. work i think so too you know it's like a i don't want to call it a farm system but it's a place where you can play p- play and publish things that um you know don't feel like as much of a guarantee as like a memoir by so-and-so actor or yeah i went to the barnes and noble in the grove yesterday and my book's not there they sell it online but like of course it's not gonna be there because that's mostly a toy shop that store so it's like the smaller presses and it's not going to reach a lot of my peers because none of them read books at all period and like they're not used to buying something so even spending 17 dollars on a book is insane to them although it's in audio and in kindle so they can get it in different and i'll send them a pdf if they really 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 need it right um but i'm maybe not supposed to say that but i would um to friends yeah to friends you know like the sliding scale of readership i think is just important for people to read it but part of what I started hard to read, which was the literary social practice, these events that were like community organizing events had to do with trying to make books more relevant. And people have told me that people are more excited, but, but I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I'm so, um, either attuned to that zeitgeist, maybe too in it to know. Well, it's hard to know the outcome, you know, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, people show up, they feel good about it. They have a good time, but like, do they go home and in their private lives, like read more? Mm-hmm. I, who knows? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, I don't, it can't hurt to like try to foster that. I that's what, it's, what it's I tell myself. brain to read because it's something about, especially on pages, something about the way the light bounces off of a page and like the way it's contained, the like limited space and the physicality of it, I think is healthy for me at least. Yeah. It's like slow food, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, when all most of what we're getting is the opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, I've loved talking with you. Yeah, it's been nice. I know I have to go soon. I have a meeting. Someone's supposed to help talk me through what kind of jobs I might qualify for. Oh, really? Well, yeah. goodness, I don't want to keep you from that. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Congratulations on your book, and thank I wish you. you all the best of luck. Yes, thank you. Okay, guys, that's Fiona Allison Duncan. Her debut novel is called Exquisite Mariposa. It is available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find her online at FionaAD.com. You can track her down on Twitter. Her handle over there is at FifiDunks. The novel, again, is called Exquisite Mariposa. Go get your copy immediately. Fiona Allison Duncan. Good time meeting her. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this program, tip your server. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. 
Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Wherever apps are uh, to be had. So, uh, happy Thanksgiving. You know, it's a tradition. It's a lie. It's, it's, you know, I always think of, like, Native American people and the destruction that uh, was wrought on this continent. It's kind of just bullshit. But, you know, here we are. It's our reality. And it's uh, also a day to uh, acknowledge our blessings, which is not, in general, a terrible thing to do, if done in earnest right? Anyway, I have complicated feelings. I hope you're uh, doing well. I hope if you have complicated feelings, you're able to sort through them and uh, persevere. I hope if you're with your family, it's going all right. I hope if you're shopping, it's not too crazy. You're not in one of those like Walmart stampede situations. Don't do that. Next time on the Other People Podcast, I will be speaking with Abigail Tartelin. She will be back on the program for a second time. Her new novel, Dead Girls, was the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. I had a really nice time talking with her, catching up. It's been a few years, and uh, that one is coming up next week. So, stay tuned. Happy Thanksgiving. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 